like to invite you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Last Lord's Day, I began on our behalf to look at the question of Adam's sin. As described by the Apostle Paul here in Romans 5.12, this particular doctrine and those related to it are proposed by Paul and answered by him throughout the entirety of Romans 5, 12 to 21. And we should do well to read this text again in order to sense the force of Scripture's actual words. Romans 5, 12 to 21. You follow along as I read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you remember and For those of you who are not here, I began asking last week a whole series of implication questions from what we have just read, especially, and for this morning, those profound words of verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I told you that the first words of this verse, as represented in our English Bibles with the translation, therefore just as, find their conclusion not at the end of this verse, but actually all the way down into the latter part of verse 18. You might be able to say it like this, picking up with the first part of verse 12, therefore just as, and the latter part of verse 18, so or so also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
In other words, one side of the equation is saying that just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and as a result, death through that sin, and as a result of that sin, this death spread to all men because all sinned. And the other side of the equation says, so also, through one act of righteousness, that is, through the death of Christ on behalf of sinners, there results a justification and life for all men in Christ. You see, you must find a corresponding conclusion to the end of the sentence of verse 12, because as you will notice in your Bibles, there's a dash mark that ends verse 12. That's because the translators in your English Bible realize correctly that Paul ends verse 12 without completing his thought. There's something else to say here. He's left us hanging. And he goes into some kind of parenthetical interlude all the way from the end of verse 12 or the beginning of verse 13 all the way to verse 18. Now, as I propose the connection of these two verses, verses 12 and 18, Douglas Moo believes, and I think rightly so, that Paul's therefore just as, or maybe in some of your Bibles, therefore because of this, that phrase maybe ought to be seen in more of this sense, for the sake of, as we start verse 12, for the sake of, or maybe even better yet, because of this promise. You say, what promise? Well, the answer to that, of course, is in verses 1 to 11. Because of the promise of Christ's justification, His justification of sinners, and also because of the redemption that we've received, and also because of the reconciliation that God grants to us as hostile sinners to Himself. And just as Adam plunged all of us into sin, Christ now stands as the corporate head of a new race of people, thus ensuring the fulfillment of the promises of God about all these things. That's what I think Paul is driving toward here. Our justification, he says, is going to happen. Our redemption is going to happen. Our reconciliation is a promise fulfilled because whereas in Adam all die because all sinned, so also now in Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the corporate head of a new realm, a new sphere, God guarantees the certainty of these things. I mean, it's one thing to say that you can have justification and redemption and reconciliation, but you try to have it by working out your own issues while you're in Adam. That's not going to do, is it? We have to have a completely new remake to the issue of dealing with our sin. We've got to have it remade completely. We've got to be translated or transferred into a new realm a new existence, a new life, and we can't do that on our own. We have to go from one head, Adam, to another head, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Whereas once I was standing in the loins of Adam, the head of the sinful race of human beings, which destined me to eternal ruin, now, because of my union with my new head, Jesus Christ, all that Paul speaks of justification and redemption and reconciliation, he says, will come to pass. 
Now, some of you might be saying, as you might have asked last week, who really cares about all the specifics of this exegesis that you're proposing? Why does it really matter that there's a dash at the end of verse 12 and a pickup with verse 18? Why, why is all of this really going to matter in the long run? Well, for instance, I would answer you in this way. Shouldn't you care that we accurately represent both the very words of Paul himself to say nothing of attempting to rightly represent the very flow of this incredibly crucial passage? Sure. I'd say that's pretty important, wouldn't you? To understand what the Word of God is really saying. Because frankly, with Paul's arguments woven so tightly, we must do our best to capture the sense of what he's communicating to these Roman believers and ourselves as well. We want to attempt at all times with our study of God's Word, especially here in Romans 5, when it's talking about the doctrines of man and sin and salvation, we must cut it straight, this Word of God. It's of paramount importance. And it is of tremendous significance that we do our best when we're talking about the fulfillment of the fundamental and far-reaching implications of man's sin and salvation. And as I said last week, We ought to do so for nothing less than the reason that our eternal destiny hangs on the understanding of these truths. And that's why we're going to go a little bit slower. You must understand the sense of what Paul is driving toward here because of all these implications that I posed as questions last time from Romans 5.12. And you remember that I proposed some very, very important and profound and also controversial questions. And I want to try to answer some of those this morning from Romans 5.12. Do you remember what we said as an outline of this particular verse last time? Four great truths, four great realities, four principles that Paul is teaching us here in this one verse, Romans 5.12, and they are these. One, sin entered the world through Adam. Verse 12a. Sin entered the world through Adam. It's the first part of verse 12. Secondly, death was the result of sin. Verse 12b, death was the result of sin. Thirdly, death spread to all men. Verse 12c, death spread to all men. And finally, number four, all men are therefore sinners. Verse 12d, A, B, C, D. Sin entered the world through Adam. Death was the result of sin. Death spread to all men. And all men are therefore sinners. Very easy to understand in one sense, but we must unpack it for ourselves. Do you remember the first set of questions that I posed last week from the first part of verse 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man? Let me rehearse them with you. When Paul says what he does here about sin coming into the world through this one man, that man being the first ever man, Adam, I posed a couple of questions. And they are these. Was it only his first sin that Paul is speaking of here? What about Adam's other sins? Is it only his first sin that God was most concerned about? And and why does Paul make such a big deal out of one sin? Like he says in the first part of verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation to all men. What a statement. One trespass led to the condemnation of all men? What about Adam's 
future sins? What's the big difference between his first sin and his subsequent sins? And why is there no mention here in Romans about the fact that it was actually Eve who sinned first and not Adam? Why is Adam charged with bringing sin into the world? There might be a few men in the crowd who might ask that question. Why? She was the one who sinned first. And besides that, wasn't sin already in the world? Since Lucifer, Satan himself, had sinned obviously already and even was sinning himself right at that moment by enticing Eve to sin before she actually sinned? Why doesn't Paul charge Lucifer with being the one who brought sin into the world and then began spreading it all around? Those are some major, major questions that people have. I want to arm you with some answers to those so that you can evangelize others when they come to you. Now, maybe it might not always be uh, the most intellectual person who comes to you. They may not even always and forever come to you with these particular questions, but some might. Some might come to you and say, what about these things? What's your answer? You say you're a Christian. What's the Christian answer to this? These are all very provocative questions and they deserve our careful attention. Let's start with that first question. Was it only Adam's first sin that Paul is referring to here in verse 12? What's the Christian answer? Yes. Yes, the Apostle Paul is only referring to Adam's first sin when he speaks of sin entering the world. That's what he wants to center in on. That's what he wants us to focus our minds upon. It was through Adam's first sin, as Paul says right here, through one man that sin came marching into the world. Now I want to be clear about some of the terms that we need to use in order to intersect with others who have also attempted to understand these matters. In other words, I want you to understand some theological terminology. Because if you were to do some wider reading in theology, or you were to be faced with some dialogue with someone, either from the non-Christian world or even someone within Christianity who wants you to help them understand these things, you need to begin to know what various theologians are talking about when they talk about this one sin. And the first sin to which Peter refers is commonly called original sin. How many of you have heard that term, original sin? Good. How many of you could define such a term? Not so many hands. Why? Because it's difficult at times to express. And when theologians talk about Adam's original sin, that's a very long-standing theological concept which they used to mark what Paul describes right here in Romans 5.12. Everybody who's ever grappled with Romans 5.12 has come across this idea of original sin. Now, having said that, the term itself has been somewhat confusing to some. Because what what is it really referring to when we say original sin? What's Paul really referring to? Well, he's referring here not simply or only to Adam's first sin. That's the start. It's a part of it, but it's not the whole of it. Why? Because there might be someone who comes along, and certainly there was in the history of the church, a man by the name of Pelagius, who came along and looked at Romans 5.12 and said, Aha! 
I must conclude from this that if sin entered the world through one man, then that one man has a problem. He has some sin in his life that he needs to deal with. And he wouldn't discount the fact that there are other people in the world with sin issues, but he didn't see the necessary link between Adam's original sin and our sin. And so he concluded, wrongly, but concluded nonetheless, that original sin had to do specifically and only with Adam's sin. It did not affect anyone else. He didn't discount the fact that there was sin in the world, but he didn't say it was coming directly from or as a result of the implications of Adam's first sin. And some have suggested, and I think probably it's a good thing not to call this original sin. So if you're reading in a theology book, if you're discussing this with a theologian or someone else, or you're just having Christian discussion, and you talk about original sin, maybe we should use the term inherited sin. Inherited sin. Because this is what Paul is really attempting to teach us here in Romans 5.12. When Adam's sin caused the whole world to plunge into sin, it was because all humanity was in Adam. That's why we say inherited sin. We inherited sin from Adam. And it was this inherited sin in which then all humanity has succumbed. You might even read from some who will refer to it as imputed sin. That's also acceptable. So we have a couple of different terms, don't we? Three of them. Original sin, inherited sin, imputed sin. All of them referring to the same thing, but with a little bit of different nuance. It's imputed in the sense that because of Adam's headship over the whole human race, his first sin was thus put to our account. Sort of like an accounting term, a legal term, put to our account. It was imputed to us also. And you might even hear of those who refer to inherent sin with the term Adam's fall, or Adamic sin, or Adamic fall, all describing the same thing. What Adam did and what we did in Adam, describing mankind's fall. Now the point is, it wasn't merely Adam's own individual falling into sin. That's why when we say original sin, it wasn't just with Adam and his issues. It is our issue as well. We inherited from our first father, Adam, the sin which dogs us from the very moment we are conceived. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51.5 and you'll see this. Psalm 51.5, this is one of those great penitential psalms of David acknowledging his sin like Psalm 32. In fact, that's even what it is often referred to as penitential psalms, penitence, repentance, contrition, brokenness. Psalm 51.5, here's the sense of the idea of inherited sin, original sin, The transmission of sin from Adam to us by King David as he wrote it in Psalm 51.5. He was thinking about his own sin and he said this, Psalm 51.5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now the first thing we have to say is that that is not referring to some illicit union which David's mother had which resulted in his conception and birth. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, he was acknowledging the truth that sin has affected everyone. Everyone from their very conception and subsequent birth. 
And so whether you hear someone call it original sin or inherent sin or imputed sin, it can refer and certainly does refer to both Adam's original sin, which he himself first committed, and by transmission, the sinfulness which he passed down to the rest of us as fellow human beings. That's what Paul's driving at here in Romans 5.12. Now, as to the question of why this one sin and not all his subsequent sins, the answer in part is that what Paul is driving toward here is talking about his first sin, and Paul is convinced that it's the first sin which did all the damage. It's that first sin which did all the damage. And as to another question that I ask, we ask why Paul would make such a big deal out of this one first ever sin of mankind. And the answer, of course, is that all other sins which Adam committed and the absolute entirety of all the sins which all other human beings commit are all related to this one first sin he committed. That's what makes it different. Every sin that you've ever committed, that you're committing now, that you will ever commit, and every subsequent sin that Adam himself committed are all related to that one first sin. It's the fountainhead sin out of which all other sin flows. Both his and ours. That is, interestingly, why this first sin is, is spoken of in the singular in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Did you notice that? Adam's sin. Not Adam's sins. Adam's sin. It was this first sin and not sins that has done the great cataclysmic universal harm to the human race. This is why Paul precisely keeps referring to Adam's first sin as he does in our passage. Look at Romans 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world. And death through what? Sin. Not sins. Sin. Look at verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. Verse 15. For if many dies through the one man's trespass... Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Verse 16 again, the judgment following one trespass. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass. Verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. What's he aiming to teach us here? What he wants to tell us is that Adam's sin, that first sin, was a representative sin. He was representing all of us in that sin. And when he sinned that first sin, he was acting as the whole human race's head. The late theologian Anthony Hokema is very helpful on this, summarizes it for us. This is what he said, Adam was a public person. When he committed that first sin. He was then acting as our head. Something that could not be said about him when he committed subsequent sins. Not about our parents and ancestors when they sinned. In other words, that second sin that Adam committed and the third and the fourth and so on. And every sin we commit are subsequent sins to that one sin that he committed as the representative of the race of humanity. Hokema calls it calls Adam a public person at that point. 
We were bound up in Him in some way. He was our our public representative. He was given the choice both to say no to that first sin or to say yes to it. And He made a choice for us that would either mean righteousness and or obedience to God or unrighteousness and disobedience to God. And of course we know all so well what choice He made. Hokema goes on to write, and we'll get into this much more later, as an implication and therefore a result of our involvement in Adam's guilt, all human persons are born in a state of corruption. This corruption, also called pollution or depravity, uh, that's sort of the result of it all, the consequences of it all, is transmitted to us through our parents. Our involvement in and identification with Adam's sin carries with it the perversity apart from which sin does not exist. In other words, if Adam hadn't sinned in that way, there would be no pollution, there would be no depravity, there would be no perversity, but it did and therefore we are experiencers of it. We are born in a state of corruption because we are in solidarity with Adam in his sin. We do not understand, Hokema says, and I agree with this, we do not understand how this corruption can be transmitted from parents to children. We don't understand precisely and completely how it happened. He says the laws of human heredity can provide no explanation for this process. But, he concludes by saying both Scripture and experience tell us that the pollution of sin is indeed passed on from parents to their offspring. It's true. Just look at your children. Just look at them even from a very early age. And when they crawl, and they crawl to places they don't need to crawl, or when they toddle, as they walk to places they don't need to, and you say to them, don't touch that. And sometimes they might even look back at you as their hand is reaching for that which they should not touch. And they look at you and they look at the object and what do they often do? Touch it. Does it remind you of Genesis 3? Touching it. That's exactly what we're talking about. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand it completely or not, the doctrine of the inherited sin of Adam, our representative, which is indeed our own sin against God, is what God's Word unequivocally teaches. And that's what you need to tell people. Romans 5 12. It then teaches us unmistakably that sin entered the world through one man's first ever sin. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, if someone comes along and says, how do you explain that? What is this transmission? How does it come from parents to children? How does it come to every one of them? What's really going on there? Is it seminal? Is, is it just a, a physical procreative act? For which sin is transmitted? And the answer is, of course, it can't be that. It's a part of it, but it can't be all that's there. Because sin is an immaterial thing. It causes us to do material things. It causes us to do actions, doesn't it? But it's an immaterial thing. It's a high treason against God. It's something in the cosmos. It's not always something that I can touch and taste and feel. I see the effects of it. So how can that be seminally related? How can it be just that? Well, it isn't just that. It's something more. You say, well, what is that more? None of us know. None of us know. It's a mystery. We, we can't 
understand with full, complete knowledge as God does how it happens. But it happens, and it's true, and it's a reality, and it's what God's Word teaches, and we better not deny it. And often so many people have denied it to their own eternal peril. I deny this truth. I deny that I'm a sinner in Adam. I deny that Adam's sin had anything to do with me. I deny these realities. I deny the truth of them. In fact, some people even say this. I don't even believe in the historicity of Adam and Eve. You read Genesis 3 this morning. You read the account of this crafty serpent for which somehow this Lucifer person being somehow jumped into the voice box of this serpent who doesn't even have a voice box in the first place and somehow tempted some supposed human beings in a garden where God had told them you can do everything except this one thing and then they did the one thing and then this serpent being was the one who tempted them into sin and then they fell into sin. What kind of folly is that? We're so much more sophisticated in the 21st century. Somebody believes something like that, they ought to have their head examined. Somebody believes that, and then you put your faith in an imaginary person called Jesus Christ as, as the antidote, as the, as the means whereby this serpent's temptation and this, this supposed mankind's fall is the remedy? Come on. Go back to school. Learn some more. This time learn reality. Well, I accept the Word of God as the basis of truth. And as my source of truth, I do my best to understand what the Bible says. And the Bible, unequivocally, even if I can't define and discuss these things with the kind of perfection that people demand, it nevertheless is true. And what it says is sin entered the world through one man's first sin. And I definitely see the effects of it. I see it in my own life. I see it in our world. I see it in you. You see it in me. We see the effects of sin. Now someone could come along and say, but wait a minute. There was another implication question that you posed earlier, and it's, it's this. Why is there no mention in Romans 5 about the fact that it was actually Eve? I mean, someone might come along and in your evangelistic discussions with them or in your theological discussions with them, they say, now, wait a second here. If I look at Genesis chapter 3 and I see what was really going on there, it was really the serpent dialoguing predominantly, if not exclusively, with Eve. And now the Apostle Paul comes along and says that it was Adam's sin? That seems to me to be a contradiction. What's happening here? Well, why is Adam charged with bringing sin into the world? That's a good question. And I would submit to you, at least initially, that there are some implicit arguments for why, in the general teaching of Scripture, that Eve is not held ultimately culpable for her first sin. And one implicit argument might be something like this. Adam has headship over Eve. Adam's held responsible by God in the garden and beyond... Because, since Adam himself was created first by God himself, he could not legitimately blame anyone else, Adam. Of course, though he tried. Eve was created next. That is, out of Adam's side, with one of his ribs. 
And thereby, God was holding Adam responsible for Eve. You see, if he was created first, he was therefore responsible. He was ultimately the regent over all creation. He had dominion. He had an encharged relationship with God of the creation order. And Eve, in fact, was created out of Adam. Adam was created by God from the dust of the earth, as we read this morning. Eve was created from Adam. That makes Adam the progenitor of the race. That makes him the one who's ultimately responsible to God. And you can see, though, the nature of human sin, because immediately upon sinning his first sin, what does Adam do? Blame shifts. Immediately. Even though he's the head of the race, even though he's supposed to be in charge, he tries to blame Eve by saying to God, and we read it this morning, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And you know what? That may also be an implicit reference of Adam blaming God. The woman you gave me. Either way... It's anything that man can do from Adam down to the very person who's standing in this pulpit displacing themselves of their responsibility by saying, my sin was caused by somebody else. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Or I did it, but I was forced to do it. I couldn't do anything else but. No. Adam should have exercised his responsible leadership before God and interacted with the serpent himself, resisting the temptation to sin and protecting his wife, and he didn't do so. And that's a problem that we also see all the way down to the 21st century. Men don't lead their wives, don't protect their wives, don't lovingly do everything they can to ensure their wives' health and care and spiritual nurture and development. You say as some of the women might in this room. Yeah, that's right. I need that protection and my husband just isn't providing it. And there goes my non-leading husband again. If my head would just lead me in the right direction, I'd respond perfectly every time. Right? Well, the biblical picture is not that pretty for women either, is it? Yes. Even though Eve was created from Adam's rib and was therefore supposed to follow the lead of her husband, her sinful explanation to God about why she sinned could have been forever marked like this. God, I was just following my husband's lead. I simply did what I was led to do. But that's not the biblical record, is it? The biblical record of Eve was that she was stepping out of her God-ordained role as follower. She interacted with the serpent directly. She sinned by reversing the very role she was designed to fulfill from creation itself. She cannot blame someone for her brazen sin of the usurpation of Adam's leadership. Not at all. So you have two people sinning in their own ways, but Adam's the head and therefore he's the most responsible. Do you like that, men? Appreciate that role? It's yours. You have the leadership role, and whether you follow it 
Like God's design or not, you are still in charge. You are still the leader. You are still called upon to be the protector, the provider, the leader, the responsible head, the head of your family, and the head of society in general. That's what you are called to do. You say, well, all of those sound like implicit answers. Well, let me give you a few explicit ones. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll show you why Adam's sin was his sin and not... Eve's ultimately as he is the responsible one. This is exactly the creation order argument. This is the creation order argument for why Adam is held responsible. Listen to the order of the creation of the universe as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, And the head of Christ is God. There's the creation order. Look at verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's a creation order distinction. It's a creation order mandate. It's a creation order reality. The creation principle here is that Adam was created as the head of his wife, just as males are created in general as the leaders, the protectors, the providers, as the head of women in general. Males have that responsibility to women in general. Just as Peter says that Christian husbands ought to live with their wives in an understanding way, since wives, women, are the weaker vessels. Adam was specifically created to have dominion over the creatures, and he was also called to be the head of his wife. He was created to lead, to protect, to love Eve, who was taken out of man's body, a clear designation that Eve stemmed from Adam. She was to take her cues from him. She was to follow his leadership. And notice how Paul also teaches this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Turn over there, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Here's how he states it in 1 Timothy 2, 12. Talking, of course, about leadership and teaching in the church. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam, here's Paul's argument, here's the reason, here's the buttressing, here's the foundation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. People say, oh, there it was. Adam wasn't deceived. See, it was that woman all along. Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was, and she became a transgressor. You know what it's saying by Adam was not deceived? doesn't mean he wasn't culpable. You know what it means? It means he sinned willingly. It means he sinned consciously. It means he sinned knowingly. He's not off the hook here. The problem is, it's actually indicting Adam all the more. Eve was deceived, but Adam did it of his own volition. And Paul grounds the command not to allow women in general to teach in the church because Adam was formed first, then Eve, and thus this grounding is due to the order of creation. And he likewise grounds the responsibility for teaching in the church to men in general because males are called upon to protect and to teach and to lead the church from deception and lies. Everything about this passage speaks about the order of creation, about male and then female, including the deception Eve experienced when she was seduced by Satan 
And this because Adam failed to lead his wife away from that deception. And even if you want to widen the picture about Adam's headship over the race a little bit more, Adam had this delegated responsibility from God. You remember from the first couple of chapters of Genesis, he said, this is what I want you to do. This is why I've created you, to have dominion over the creatures. This is your role. Name all the animals. Do what you need to do as my servant. As a male human being, you're to be the head of mankind in general, including the very next created human being. You're to be be the leader of your wife. And I might parenthetically add, including in the very issue of leading her not to sin and not to sin yourself. And he didn't protect her from the craftiness of the serpent, did he? He fell. He didn't protect her. And this is a mind blower. You say, and how did they fall? What what did Adam do that he was irresponsible in doing it. And what was going on with Eve in this deception? They were deceived by a fallen angel. Lucifer, as he was then known. Now known, of course, as the devil, the diabolos, the the tempter, the dragon. He's real. Don't let anybody read the first couple of chapters of Genesis and so easily dismiss it. If they did, they'd be dismissing the whole Bible. Because Jesus affirmed the truth of this. Paul affirmed the truth of this. Peter affirmed the truth of this. The Bible writers are consistently quoting back to Genesis 1 and 2 and saying our first parents and children and parents and people and human beings. And the issue is they came from someone, namely Adam and Eve. It's true. The biblical record is perfect in its depiction of the creation account, including the serpent. And Adam... He should have have led his wife away from temptation, not into it. And he didn't. Robert Raymond well writes of this scene in the garden. And we read it for our scripture reading. Here's what he says. Her, that's Eve's, actions which then followed were simply consistent with her new understanding of the situation. I mean, after the serpent deceived or, or, or tempted her into deception, he says what's followed was the consistent understanding of the new situation. She took some of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband also who was with her, and he ate. And action on the part of both, which was simply the sign and seal that in their hearts they had already ceased to be covenant keepers and instead had become covenant breakers. And then notice this, wisely written. The phrase, who was with her, referring to Adam, Genesis 3.6, is significant, he says. It shows that Adam was present throughout the entire conversation between the serpent and his wife and that he had abdicated his headship role over his wife. Although he remained silent, he no less than Eve refused to defend God's honor when the serpent attacked his integrity. You see, that, that's really what should have been going on there. Both Adam and Eve should have been saying, Away, Satan! Away, serpent! Away, whoever you are! I will not listen to you because you're not having God's honor uppermost in your mind. You are trying to deceive us. God will not be mocked in that way. God is to be honored. He's given us commands. And we are called upon to follow those commands away with you and your temptations, away with those deceptions. 
He allowed his wife to instruct him to ignore God's prohibition instead of instructing her to resist the serpent's deception. According to Paul, that we read, 1 Timothy 2.14, while the woman was plainly deceived, Adam transgressed God's prohibition consciously, knowingly, and willingly. And if you look back, by the way, at what we read from Genesis 3.17 and God's immediate judgment upon Adam's sin, you know what's going on because God gives you a divine commentary on it through Moses' pen. And here's what he says in Genesis 3.17. And to Adam he said, this is God, this is the curse. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Mark that. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. See, he's not saying you can rightly, conveniently, fortuitously blame the voice of your wife for this. Even though that's what you did, I commanded you not to do it. I commanded you. She wasn't a buffer between you and me. She wasn't a mediary between you and me. I told you not to do it. I commanded you, and you transgressed my command, and as a result of that, you are cursed. And so is the ground upon which you tread. In pain you shall eat of the earth's fruit all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. And he says it because Adam knowingly, consciously, willingly disobeyed God's expressed command. And you know what he did? He believed the creature rather than the creator. Eve was the, was the creature. She, she'd been created, even out of Adam's own side. And he listened to someone who had come out of him instead of the very creator himself. Listened to the voice of his wife, ate of that tree, And plunge the whole human race into that which we now live and experience. Now at this point, someone's going to say, wait, 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 wait. They couldn't have sinned in that way if there hadn't already been sin in the world. How is God blaming Adam, let alone Eve, for this sin when there was already sin. In fact, there was sin when Lucifer was tempting them to sin. There was sin because there was sinful temptation on his part. Why does the human family, Adam and Eve, why do they experience the guilt and treachery of plunging the whole human race into sin? It's, it's Lucifer. That's the problem. Well, theologians have a term for this problem. It's called theodicy. Theodicy means the origin of evil. Where did it come from? And people like that have grappled with that, even Christian theologians, and said, boy, if sin hadn't been in the world in the first place, then, then Adam and Eve wouldn't have sinned. And so that's the greater problem. That's the greater issue. What's going on there? If we can find out the answer to that question, then maybe we can find out the answer to the human dilemma. You know what my answer to theodicy is, the origin of evil? I have no idea. I have no idea. You know why? Because in the whole corpus of biblical revelation, there is not a solid Secure, precise, definitive answer. 
It just isn't. You say, I don't like that. I like all things neatly tied up in a box with a bow on top. No, you don't. You don't want that. You know why? Because if you did, you'd be God. And if you were God, we'd be in a heap of trouble. If I thought I knew all the answers, including the origin of evil, we'd be in real trouble. Because God would be your pastor. And you know what? No human being is God. The issue is theodicy, the origin of evil, was in the world. Yes, I admit it's true that Lucifer committed the first sin. But that's not where Paul's going in Romans 5. He's not endeavoring to answer that question. You say, why are you bringing it up then? Well, because people ask it when they read these words. And they inevitably will question, what about the sin before the sin? Paul keeps talking about the sin that was the trespass that brought the condemnation of all men, but there was already a sin. That's the culprit. No. And while it's a profound mystery, and we aren't necessarily given any solid biblical data on this, although somebody says, wait a minute, what about Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14? What about those things? Doesn't that give us some kind of sense in which Lucifer, this star of the morning, this this person who became a serpent in the garden, wasn't he referred to there? Probably not. I don't think that's necessarily giving us biblical data on Satan himself and his fall. Now, there might be some kind of illusion if you could study hard enough and try to prove that, but it's not definitive. It's not absolutely clear that that's referring to Satan and his downfall because of pride. You say, what about Revelation 12? Well, yes, there is in Revelation 12, 7 to 9, a talk about a war in heaven. And the archangel Michael and his fellow angels fought against Lucifer and his fellow angels, who are now called, of course, demons. And the text does say that Satan, referred to in Revelation 12 as the dragon, the deceiver Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to earth and the hosts of his demonic angels with him. Yes, that's true. But when did that occur? Romans 12 seems to indicate that maybe that's at the end, not at the beginning. Or if we saw it at the beginning, what's really going on? Why did he fall? What's the situation? Revelation 12 doesn't tell us. One thing we know about the background of Romans 5. Satan does, if we look back in the Genesis record... To substantiate Romans 5, he does take over the voice box of a serpent. And if he didn't, Lucifer was able to give him one somehow. And he'd already, obviously, fallen. God had already judged him, including the other angels. You say, how many? Some say one-third of the angels, two-thirds being righteous and holy. They did not sin. They're God's angels at God's bidding. We don't know that for sure. Scripture doesn't really tell us that explicitly. There's a conjecture that Satan fell with one-third of the angels into the abyss, some of them in darkness and chains to this great day, according to Jude 6. Some of them continuing to roam around the earth. And somehow, between eternity past and time, or just before time began, just before the Genesis 1 account, Something happened in the universe in which Satan 
Lucifer, this star of the morning, rebelled against God, and certainly some angels with him, and God cast him out of his presence because God does not look upon sin, can't have sin in his presence. And Satan and his hosts, in fact, began to do nefarious deeds. And when the creation account comes, Genesis 1-1, and when Adam and Eve themselves are in the Garden of Eden with perfect bliss, there appears mysteriously with dark shadows an animal who is inhabited by Lucifer, Satan himself, the deceiver. And he starts his deception. And Jesus even said about him, he's been a liar from the beginning. You say, well, when was that? What were the issues? What was really going on? How did he sin? Was it pride? Was it arrogance? Was it boastfulness? Was it something else? We don't know. We don't know, but we do know this. There was a sin that occurred before Adam's first sin, and it was this deception, and the Bible teaches it, and this, this beautiful, sinless Lucifer became ugly, sinful Satan the deceiver who will now attempt to deceive Eve in Adam's very presence. Isn't that amazing? He's brazen himself. He's going to go right into the presence of the man and the woman, the first man, the first woman, the first Adam, and right in his presence, he's going to question the veracity and the authority of God's Word. That's brazen. It's amazing. You say, what happens? Well, we read it. He successfully deceived Eve. Adam did nothing to protect. He took from the fruit that she gave him. He ate. And the deed was done. Conclusion. What if I don't understand all of these things with the kind of completeness, with the kind of fullness that I would like to understand or that some Christians understand. Don't worry about that ultimately. Just worry about the basics. This is what happened. This is what the Bible said. And you teach it to Christians and non-Christians alike. And for non-Christians, you tell them, and as non-Christians no doubt are among us today, the answer is this. It's true. It happened. It's the explicit teaching of the Word of God. And even if we don't know all the hows and the wheres and the wherefores, for which this teaching comes to us, we do know this, I have sin in my life. And I received it as a result of the fall of my first father. My great, 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 and do it many times over. And when he sinned, I sinned. Because I sinned in and with him. And even if you don't understand those things to the degree that you're satisfied, understand this, I've got sin in my life, and I've got to deal with it. I've got to deal with it. I want you to bow your heads with me. And if you're sitting there this morning and you're asking the question, yes, I have to deal with my sin. You could very well be here today because you believe God brought you here today because you need to deal with the fallout of Adam's sin because you know that that's your own sinful condition and you realize maybe for the first time ever that you're under a curse the curse of this inherited sin 
And you've committed personal choices which were and are sinful. And you may not understand all of the implications of where that came from and that there's new light on your reasoning today that it came from my forebearers. And I know what I've already known and that's sin is in me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Even if you don't choose to grasp the truth that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, you will nevertheless one day stand before a sinless God and be asked to give an account for your sin. And it will be ask of you to give an account for your sin both in your condition and character and in your choices. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? Blame Adam? Blame Eve? Blame Lucifer? You're going to be like Adam, blaming Eve, blaming God? No. The blame for the dilemma that you're in is your own. And you'll be forever condemned for it. Unless you repent, turn, turn from your sin and believe in the only provision that God has planned for your deliverance, Jesus Christ. Oh, I urge you to believe and repent right now. Believe in God's Son so that He may deliver you from your sin. And if you're a Christian here, you're delighting right now. You're rejoicing. You're exulting even in the midst of your suffering, that God is guaranteed, He's assured that this is the truth of His Word to your own heart and that you rejoice that you have indeed been delivered. Oh, rejoice in God. Be happy in God. Ask God to bless you. Ask God to take this message that you've received and preach it to others. Ask God to allow you to rejoice in the truth that even though sin has entered the world through one man, through another man, Jesus Christ, we can have justification and redemption and reconciliation. Oh God, work in the hearts of believer and unbeliever alike for your honor and glory and for the sake of the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.